Brothers and sisters, this morning we begin where we left off last time, which I'm sure doesn't surprise you. We've been laboring to see and understand uh, each connection within uh, the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Uh, this applies uh, to the overall structure of Romans, sin, salvation, service, which we reviewed again last time, pointing out the connection between each part or section of Paul's letter. But even within each section, there are connections to be made. No sooner does Paul finish one part of his teaching when he is making the next point as an application or perhaps a further explanation of uh, the previous lesson. So I begin this morning by saying good morning and welcome. I know I said that uh, earlier at the start of the service, but I say it now again intentionally because last time we noticed (laughs) that Paul concludes a section of his teaching by writing, therefore, welcome one another. So I just welcomed you again. Uh, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this we saw as a kind of closing bookend, matching the opening bookend in Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Therefore, in between the two, we find Paul's teaching on how and why to welcome your brother or sister in the church. We are to do so, number one, by not quarreling with him or her. Number two, we welcome others by not passing judgment on them, but leaving it to the Lord to judge. Number three, third, we welcome a fellow believer by remembering that they are a fellow believer and not causing them to to stumble and uh, uh, to, not causing them to stumble as as that person walks the path of the Christian life along with us. So, yes, welcoming a, a brother or sister uh, begins by saying, perhaps even quite literally, welcome, hello, how are you? How is your week? I was especially conscious uh, conscience, uh, conscious this morning as, as I was listening to, uh, to the congregation as, as people were showing up. And I, I, I was happy to hear so many good mornings and so many how are yous and, uh, and various greetings, which are very important for us, uh, even though they may seem Uh, so small and seemingly uh, insignificant, simply acknowledging another person as they come through the door, only by saying hello and and goodbye. We can be kind and encouraging toward others. But welcoming others obviously goes beyond that important starting point, as Paul has sought to teach us in the previous passage. However, Paul doesn't just close by writing, Therefore, welcome one another even more. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the connection to what follows and the passage for today, starting in verse 8. The model to follow as we welcome one another is Christ himself. So let's make the first point the servanthood of Christ. Because verse 8 reads, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Here maybe is a, an unexpected thing for Paul to write at this point, but it shows us the depth of Paul's point. He is not just calling for warm greetings in the church. He is not just calling for basic kindness between brothers and sisters. And when Paul brings in Christ as the model for us to learn and follow, his thoughts, as we have heard, go all the way back to the patriarchs. Wow, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and David, have they something to do with how believers in Christ relate to each other in Paul's day and even in our own day? Yes, and... And here's how, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That means uh, the Jews, uh, Christ's own people. Christ became a servant to his own people, and he did so because God had promised that he would. In some sense, it's as simple as that. Here we can stop and, and really listen to what Paul is saying. It's, it's been mentioned before that there are those who, who claim that Jesus had to figure out who he was, uh, that he had to grow and, and come into his identity as the Messiah, eventually realizing that his role in, in, in providing salvation was the cross. But Paul makes it clear here that Christ came into this world, that Christ became a servant knowingly. He did so intentionally. He did it deliberately on purpose. And with this being that purpose at its most basic level to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs. So why did Christ come? There are a number of ways we, we can answer but this is Paul's answer here. Christ came because God said he would come. Christ came to prove that God is true. Christ came to fulfill the promise of God. In the words of the Apostle Peter, we do well to pay attention to this, even as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And the thing that Peter would have us pay attention to is the same point that Paul makes. In 2 Peter 1.19, he writes, And we have the prophetic word made uh, uh, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. And this is what Paul is, is teaching back in our text in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So quickly to this second point, the fulfillment of prophecy. Whether by the teaching of Peter or Paul, the call is given us to pay attention to the fulfillment of prophecy. Specifically, how the coming and life and ministry of Christ has fulfilled what God said would happen. And perhaps in this way, we, we hit upon the most simple definition of prophecy. Simple and yet helpful. That prophecy in the Bible is simply God saying what would happen 
before it happens. Saying what would happen because he would make it happen. Prophecy is God to use a, I can get away with this, to use a billiards metaphor. Prophecy is God calling his shots. And we can note that the gospel writers were intent on helping their readers, including us, to see how the, the coming and the life and the ministry of our Lord fulfilled the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures. We need only think about how, uh, uh, how often we hear the gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, how often they, they pause to record as, as it is written, uh, or for it is written, or this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, or so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Over and over again, we hear such references in the Gospels. And the most basic level, or at the most basic level of our faith, believers in Christ ought to love to read the stories about Jesus. But even as we do, we ought to give ear to this emphasis of the Gospel writers. And in this way, the Gospels should, should spur us on to read all of Scripture. Because just as much as there are connections not to be missed in Paul's writings, so God's word as a whole contains many connections, not least of which is the pattern of promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment all the way through the Bible. So let us not neglect the, the Old Testament. The point is not that we have to swallow the whole Bible at once, but, but, but here's a way to do it, that even as we are reading the, the stories that we love to read about our Lord in the Gospels, and, and when we come to the words, as it is written, or this was to fulfill, let us uh, go back and read the, the promise or the prophecy that was indeed fulfilled in the Gospel accounts of our Lord. Doing so is, is really the explicit teaching and the call of the Apostle Peter again. Uh, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. But we can go to uh, go in the other direction in Scripture, uh, even to the Old Testament itself. And, and we can hear God in Isaiah uh, where some eight times between uh, chapters 41 through 48 in Isaiah, God points out this way of his working, his emphasis on promise and fulfillment. Isaiah writes, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have, have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Again, who is like me, says God. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appoint an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And are you not my witnesses, 
Is there any God besides me? There is none. I know not any. And, and one last time. For I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. So if we, we ever wonder why did it take thousands of years after the fall of mankind into sin for God to send a, a savior? Well, here's one way to answer. It certainly wasn't the case that God needed thousands of years, but that we needed the thousand of years. And think about all the promises, which are, are really the same promise. First in the garden, is God's response to man's sin, the promise that the seed of Eve would crush the head of Satan. Then the promise of God that the earth would endure, standing above the flood of his judgment until all things are accomplished. Then the promise of God to Abraham, that a savior would come from among his own descendants. And that promise to Abraham was repeated and God's covenant renewed with Isaac and with Jacob. Then the promise of God to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, as Moses spoke to the people, he said, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Then the promise of God to David, that one of his descendants would sit one day forever on his throne as the eternal savior king of God's people. And then, of course, the many promises given through the prophets, like, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And for us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I could go on. But hopefully the point is made that for thousands of years, for thousands of years, God promised the coming of Christ. Just to clarify, we, we must not understand that there was no salvation for God's people un, uh, while they waited. Or that there was some other way of salvation until Christ finally came. The, the promises of God were good for salvation from sin, even as the people believed the promises and waited for the fulfillment. So in some ways, we, we are not that different. We too live by faith, trusting in the promises of God. The difference is that many of God's promises to us are, are promises of what has been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. But we too have promises from God yet to be fulfilled. And the importance and value of seeing God promise and then fulfill over the course of thousands of years is, as Paul writes, to, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. If we ever have doubts and discouragements, then let us go to the promises of God and meditate upon what is ours in Christ, both now and to come. In our, in our Thursday evening Bible study, 
7 o'clock here at church, a little, little ad. In our Thursday evening uh, Bible study, we have been studying the Westminster Shorter Catechism, most, most, late, most lately question and answer 32 to 37. And there it teaches the benefits that are ours in Christ. But there are different benefits, those in this life, those at death, and those benefits to be ours at the resurrection. And yet we are promised all these benefits even now. So that we must ask ourselves in our discouragement, have I forgotten the promises of God? Or have we forgotten to live by faith so that as we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience? Romans 8, 25. And what if we lose patience? What if our doubts invade even the promises of God? In that case, let us look to those promises that are already fulfilled. Let us be shown God's truthfulness and let the promises given to the patriarchs be confirmed to us. Let us see that, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, that all the promises of God have their yes in Christ. So Paul adds, that is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Paul saw his life and, and ministry as merely his amen. If God himself has, has shown his truthfulness and confirmed his promise in Christ, then let us look to Christ and let us say amen in faith. And let us be convinced by the coming of our Lord that God always fulfills his promises. Granted, he does so in his own timing, as we so painfully know at times. But we have this promise as well, that he always has his good purpose. And his timing is always for his glory and for our good. So next is a third point, the inclusion of Christ. This is, this is Paul's specific application. In other words, this is Paul's main point, that the, the promise of God in the Hebrew scriptures for the inclusion of the Gentiles is still being fulfilled. So let's, let's follow Paul's logic. The, the main point of the previous passage, uh, Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7, was that the believers in Rome should welcome one another with the context being disputes over, over food laws. Some of the Jewish believers couldn't, couldn't let go of the food restrictions of the, of the Jewish law. And uh, uh, at, at the extreme of, of such disputes was perhaps trying to deny others membership uh, and fellowship in the church. Go away because, because you don't do it the way I do it. You eat the wrong things, things prohibited by God. But lesser symptoms of the dispute, uh, but still serious and disruptive, were quarreling, uh, harsh judgment, and the failure to bear with one another, the church. So on one hand, Paul was 
was giving in on the point of Jewish food laws. He teaches elsewhere in his writing that all foods are clean. At other times, he even forcefully confronts uh, those who continue to follow the Jewish food laws. But here he's, he's calling for patience. But not just patience, even welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. Christ had, had clearly welcomed both Jew and Gentile in the church at Rome. Conversion and faith had been granted to both Jew and Gentile. So Paul argues the point further by pointing out that Christ has shown the truthfulness of God and confirmed the promises of God by his coming and saving ministry. And yet the promise of God in the Hebrew scriptures was also that by his coming, Christ would include the Gentiles as well in his salvation. Put it another way, the, the fulfillment of prophecy was still happening in the church. Many of the promises of God had been fulfilled. The virgin had conceived and given birth to the seed of Eve, the, the offspring of Abraham, the prophet to replace Moses, the son of David. Many of the promises of God had been fulfilled, but the fulfillment of another promise was still ongoing. And it was happening right within the church at Rome, the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. So Paul begins to quote his own selection of prophecies. First from Psalm 18, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing of your name. From Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O Gentiles, uh, with his people. Uh, Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And finally from Isaiah 11, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So what would the Jewish believers do? Would they, would they rejoice to be shown the truthfulness of God and to have the promises of God confirmed, but only as those promises gave reference to them? Or would they rejoice also in the truth of God and the promise of God for the inclusion of of the Gentiles as well. And what would the Gentiles do? Would they, would they come to Christ only to reject the ancient people who had received the very promises of God for the inclusion of the Gentiles themselves? The question then becomes, maybe you're wondering this, what do we do with this passage? It's one thing to understand Paul's logic here and, and the historical context of the early church, the sad conflict between Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. But where is the application for us? We are all Gentiles. And the Jew versus Gentile conflict doesn't exist here for us, praise God. But we can, we can take and apply the following things for ourselves. First, to review from earlier, we, we can be sure of this, that if the promises of God were fulfilled in the coming of Christ, even after thousands of years, we can be sure that the promises of God upon which we wait will be fulfilled as well. Let the truthfulness of God be seen by us as it is shown in Christ. 
Christ and let the promises of God be confirmed. We can trust God to do what he has promised to do. Yes, we are called to walk by faith, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But God gives us faith and, and he, he gives us perseverance to our faith by his word. Don't overlook the references to fulfilled prophecy in the gospel story. Don't be a New Testament only Christian. God's word is powerful from beginning to end. It is God's own means of grace, his way of working in us. We are called to avail ourselves of the full word of God. Second, and perhaps most basically, should we not rejoice as Gentile believers in Christ that God's promise for the inclusion of the Gentiles has been fulfilled in our own inclusion? Through Christ, God has so worked faith in, in each of our hearts, the faith to accept as our Savior a, a Jewish man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul even writes and admits that Jesus first came or became a servant to the circumcised, but he became a servant to the Jew in order to show the truthfulness of God for the inclusion our inclusion as Gentile believers. Third, and we have taken this angle before, so to speak, we may not have conflict between Jew and Gentile within our congregation, but there is always the threat of conflict in the church. It is to be avoided. And the way to avoid it is for each of us to remember that God continues to save sinners. By, by God's own promise and purpose, by his own design, we might say, the church is full of sinners, including you and me. We, we will never agree on everything, but let us agree on this. God's grace to us in Christ is amazing. And it's God's grace that must humble us before him and in relationship to, to one another. We cannot confess that Jesus died on the cross for me, especially that while I was a sinner, he died on the cross for me, and then go hammering on each other in the church. But it's not just about using a hammer. It's about our words. It's about our attention to each other's needs. It's about our active care for one another within the church. So it is that Paul ends with a blessing. Verse 13 reads, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Why does Paul offer this blessing here? Usually the blessing, sometimes called a benediction, comes at the very end. Some scholars argue that Paul thought this would be the conclusion of his letter, but later decided to add more. But he does the same thing in Romans 15, verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. 
And again, in Romans 16, verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So there is likely a better explanation, namely that Paul recognized at this point in his instruction that the church at Rome would need the blessing of God if they would welcome one another, if they would avoid unnecessary conflicts in the church. And, and so we are instructed even by this blessing because the blessing is for hope, joy, and peace. Even more for the filling of all joy and peace and for an abounding hope. And where will hope, joy, and peace come from? Well, certainly from God. But how? Key word is believing. As each of us believes in Christ, we have hope. Hope for what is yet promised us. What we have yet to receive. It, it's, when we, it's when we lose that hope and, and start to live in desperation. It's when we try to get whatever we can now that we have so little joy. And so little peace in the present. Because we always want more before we are willing to rejoice. And to, and to be content in what we have. But when we believe. It's by faith. When we remember that Christ has welcomed us. And that he will welcome us. In heaven. <laughs> it's then that we will have the hope and the joy and the peace that we have. And then we can welcome one another, even as Christ has welcomed us, even as he will welcome us in the end. Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, show us our sin. Show us our Savior. Humble us and exalt us in Christ. Give us a faith that fills us with all joy and peace. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. As we live out our faith together. As the church. The very body of Christ on earth. In his name we pray. Amen.